For over a decade, I shopped and worked at my local comic shop. One of the best parts about hanging out there was comparing notes on what I was reading with folks who shared my passion for comics. My comic shop is gone now, but we can still hold on to the magic of that in-store discussion. This is My Comic Shop Book Club. Welcome to My Comic Shop Book Club. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Our reading selection for this episode is a pair of works by filmmaker Kevin Smith, his runs on Daredevil and Green Arrow. And joining me for this episode is, Scott, would you prefer Guardian Devil or Emerald Archer of Long Island? Which one? Uh, let's go with both. Well, okay, sure. Why not? <laughs> joining me for this episode is the Guardian Devil and Emerald Archer of Long Island, Scott Honig. <laughs> Thank you again for having me back. <laughs> have you ever, have you ever uh, shot a bow and arrow? Have you ever performed archery? I probably did when I was a kid at summer camp. I have very spotty memory of it, though. Yeah. I know I, it's hard. I've never done it, and I've always been curious about it. Uh, you know, of course, reading Green Arrow all of these years, why not? But also, and perhaps you've come across this as well, but Kevin Smith, in his introduction to the uh, collected edition of Quiver, one of the main stories we're going to be talking about for this episode, he talks about how when he got this assignment, he actually tried archery himself just to see what it was like, and he said it was exceedingly difficult just to muster the strength to uh, to pull it back. Absolutely, yeah. It's, apparently, it takes a lot of that chest strength, even more so than the arm strength. So maybe one day, maybe one day I'll get there. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I think like a few years back, my wife and I, we were going to do a Groupon for archery lessons. And then for whatever reason, it just it never came to pass. But I've always been curious about it. Uh, so maybe uh, once the pandemic is over, maybe uh, <laughs> I'll finally give it a shot because I, I am curious to see just how difficult it is. Yeah, I think it's an experience probably everyone should have at least once. So, yeah, hopefully. And I know we're jumping to the very end here, but <laughs> there's that an amazing scene in uh, Kevin Smith's final issue of his Green Hour run, issue 15, where, you know, Connor Hawk is being operated uh, upon and we're in the OR and the, the villain who shot him, Onomatopoeia, is there. And, you know, Oliver has him in his sights with the, with the bow and arrow and keeps him there for like a half hour as the doctors are operating. And all I could think of, especially having read kevin smith's introduction all i could think of was like oh my you talk about like an isometric exercise good lord i mean the amount of of strength and endurance you would have to have to keep that bow drawn for that amount of time yes. unbelievable oh i had the, i had the same thought and and when we get to it later we'll you know i'll talk about other mitigating circumstances that make it even harder for him oh the fact uh, that he had just do donated a, an absurd amount oh, of blood yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely but he did have some orange juice so that was okay Yes. Although, did he even make it? Did he even get the orange juice yet? I don't yeah. know. My goodness. Maybe he didn't even have the juice. Oh, no, he did. He, I think he sipped a little out of the juice box. <laughs> I knew, you know, once I started this book club podcast, I knew that uh, these works, the Daredevil and Green Arrow runs that we're going to talk about, I knew they would they would be early on. And, and I thank you. You were, uh, you know, very early on in this process. You had suggested doing an episode where we look at what Smith did on both of these books and made perfect sense to me. <clears throat> I loved them then. I love them now. I think they're great. I think they hold up so well. And I, I'm really excited to discuss with you. But I guess, and I'll ask for your hot take on the stories in a second. But before we even talk about the comics, like, let's just talk about Kevin Smith for a minute. Are you a, a Kevin Smith fan generally? 
Yeah, I really am. Uh, when I was in when I was in high school, I sort of fell in with a group of theater kids who happened also to be film buffs. And when I say film buffs, I mean we went to the movies for the entire weekend, every weekend, and saw anything that was playing. We just lived there. Uh, and then when the films were done, we would you know, go to Chili's and talk about the films. And then we would buy the scripts and we'd read the scenes together and really try to understand these scripts from a structural standpoint. And one of the new sort of budding filmmakers at the time, the mid-90s, was Kevin Smith, who I had never heard of, but a friend of mine had introduced me to Clerks. And it was, it, it was a film unlike anything I'd ever seen before at the time. And I just fell madly in love with this with this style. And so I've been following Kevin Smith's career um, as a filmmaker. And, you know, of course, there have been some hits and misses, and, you know, throughout his career. Um, certainly once he started making the jump into comics, I immediately, any, I bought anything with his name on it, which was my introduction to both Daredevil as a character and Green Arrow as a character, neither of whom I had read anything of prior to that. Um, and now I also listen to a bunch of Kevin Smith's podcasts because, like you, he has this sort of growing podcast empire. Uh, so uh, I, I think yeah, it's to say I'm a Kevin Smith fan is is pretty accurate. It's exceedingly <laughs> generous of you to liken what I do podcasting wise to what he does podcasting wise. But thanks, <laughs> I do appreciate. It. Here's the thing. So. I mean, our paths are a little bit different, but the broad strokes are the same. So, uh, and you know, obviously I know we'll get into this, but uh, same here, right? These were my introductions to Daredevil and Green Arrow as well. And very much, especially with Green Arrow, I think uh, even more so than Daredevil, like really cemented in my head who these characters are. Uh, but, you know, I, I too am a Kevin Smith fan. It's, you know, it's, there have been ebbs and flows in my fandom of his stuff, of his stuff over the years, but generally I am a fan and... You know, I was reflecting on this uh, recently, you know, leading up to this where, you know, as you know, and anyone who's followed my stuff for, you know, for a period of time, you know, in addition to the podcasting, I also make documentary films, very independent, low budget documentary films. My first one was about the store where I worked. And, you know, my the first Kevin Smith movie that I saw was Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which is a weird place to start because that's the fifth that is film. a weird place to start. It's the fifth film in the Viewisk universe, and there's a ton of cameos and callbacks <clears throat> to the other movies that I had never seen, but I still enjoyed yeah. it. It was still a lot of fun. This was, I watched, I remember it was like early high school. So I was, high school for me was 2001 to 2005. So like early high school, I remember watching that. And I liked it, despite not having seen the other ones. A couple of years later, uh, one of my best friends from high school, he and I took like two consecutive Saturdays and we did our own little film festival of, at that point, the five View Askew movies from Kevin Smith. And we watched in order and all that. And it was, I mean, it was enjoyable, it was entertaining, but it was eye-opening to me. Uh, and I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, I mean, that was sort of one of the, you know, first times that it even really occurred to me that like, oh, like, you don't have to be allowed to make a movie. Like, you can just go and do it. And I think I always had that in my head. And, you know, so having him as that example, that inspiration was very mm -hmm. formative for me. And, you know, I think that's really, you know, definitely one of the motivating factors when I ultimately, you know, years, it would take a few years. But, you know, <laughs> when I, I ultimately turned the camera on my local comic shop, and again, in my case, a documentary for him with, you know, with Clerks, that was, a, you know, a, a narrative uh, movie, but same type of idea. Uh, so, you know, he's been a big inspiration. And, you know, even on the podcasting front, it's funny because now everybody has a podcast. Everyone has podcasts. 
if you have one podcast, it's like everybody has. That's why I have multiple podcasts to try to stand out. But, <laughs> but you know, he was he was really at the forefront of that. And I remember uh, when he started podcasting, like 2007. And I don't, to be honest, it's like I probably didn't even know what a podcast was. It was just like, oh, this thing Kevin Smith is doing. And it's like, oh, it's like a radio show. It's on the Internet. And I was so into it. And, uh, you know, I ultimately kind of fell off in my listening, but I was an avid, you know, listener of that for, for a really long time. And I remember there was the summer, uh, during college when I had, uh, uh, my wisdom teeth taken out and I was like, you know, kind of out of commission for a few days. And I just remember like just sitting there listening, relaxing, uh, really just enjoying that. Uh, so he's, you know, again, I I've enjoyed his work, but he's also been an inspiration for both my filmmaking and my podcast. So for anyone who likes what I do, <laughs> you, know, you know, Kevin Smith did play a role and I've seen him live. I've met him once. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I, I you know, like you, I, I call myself a, a Kevin Smith fan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the Hollywood Babylon podcast and the what started as Fat Man on Batman, which is now Fat Man Beyond uh, podcasts to me are 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 you know, everything that as sort of a geek and a pop culture lover and, you know, it's, it's everything I would want. And so that's, you know, part, it's been part of my commute until this year when I'm no longer commuting. Um, but so I'm, I've fallen way, way behind, but yeah, I mean, what, what you say is, is absolutely accurate. And, you know, at the end of the day, whether you're watching one of his films or reading one of his comics or listening to a podcast or, or watching or listening to one of the, the sort of live stage shows that he gives, he's just a really good storyteller. At the end of the day, that's, that's what he does, you know, even off the cuff, you know, at a, at a college Q&A, you know, he, he just knows how to tell a story that's paced well, it's funny, it's interesting. And he is, I mean, talk about long-winded. He is long-winded, both as a writer and a, and a speaker. But even so, like, I don't care because I just enjoy what he has to say. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, sometimes it's it's kind of a long walk, but it's always worth it. Like, there's always a good payoff. Yeah. And yeah, he is very much a wordsmith. You're 100% right. Like, exactly. Whether it's a screenplay or a comic book script or a Q&A or a podcast, like whatever it is, uh, you're right. I mean, he tells a story uh, well and colorfully. And uh, and and yeah, it, it, it can be a little wordy. I mean, they, he jokes about that in the, uh, I think it's in both the, the both introductions, uh, I think. or um, Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> You know, where especially for a comic book page, you know, the amount of like literally the amount of letters and words they had to fit was more than, you know, you would typically find uh, on a comic book page. But worth it. Yeah, yeah I know. I remember reading uh, the introduction to the Daredevil trade paperback, which I read first um, because I believe he I know he wrote that first. And I think it was actually he said his first official professional comic book script period. And for him, it was a, a real learning curve because his style is to just fill his characters' mouths with dialogue. Um, you know, when you watch Clerks, like not a lot happens in Clerks. The, the, in, the interesting things about that film are all in what the characters say and how they say them, particularly Randall. Um, and so like when you look at a, a Daredevil page, especially these early issues, they are dense as hell. I mean, they're really, really dense. They are packed. Um, and you can watch, actually, Kevin Smith kind of finding that balance between, you know, putting the words that need to be there to tell the story, but also letting the art 
do its job because I mean, you, you're dealing with Joe Casada, Jimmy Palmiotti, and then, you know, Richard Eisenhoff and, and a few other on, on colors and who wants to cover that stuff up? Cause it's just stunning. So I think he really did start off, you know, falling back into his, you know, his comfort zone of, of being really verbose. But then I think he learned to let that go a little bit, especially once you start getting into green arrow, the later issues in particular, you know, he lets it go a little bit more. I couldn't agree more. I had the same thought as I was reading uh, Daredevil in particular. And, uh, you know, again, like we'll unpack all of this, but at the same yeah. time, I, you know, please feel free. Like, you know, we can jump around as, as we already are a little bit, but where, you know, Matt is mourning the loss of Karen, you know, it's, it's a gorgeous sequence. And that was one instance in particular where he really did let the art tell the story and he let the art breathe. And, uh, and I feel like that carried over into the green arrow run as well. There was definitely, it was it's still wordy for a comic book, but I felt like less packed and, and maybe by that point, right. He trusted the, you know, the art a little bit more, you know, to, to tell the story, you know, in a, in a few more instances. Uh, but I had the same thought, but, uh, so like, let's, let's, uh, well, for anyone, I'm assuming people are familiar with these stories, but in case they're not. So we're talking about, uh, again, his run on Daredevil, which was the Guardian Devil storyline, which was uh, issues one through eight of the Marvel Knights relaunch. This kicked off the Marvel Knights imprint and really ushered in uh, a new era for Marvel. I mean, it, you know, it would be this yeah. that would ultimately lead Joe Quesada to assume the uh, editorial position and beyond, you know, that he's had at the company and, you know, really brought Daredevil to a, a position of, of prominence. And really set the tone, I, I think, for what's now been, it's amazing to say, right, but like two decades of really strong uh, daredevil runs uh, as these creators have passed the baton, you know, no pun intended, but they've been passing the <laughs> baton, right, uh, you know, to each other over all of these years. And then we're also taught, and that, that uh, started in 1998. And then in 2001, he started his run on Green Arrow. Uh, the bulk of it was the 10-part Quiver storyline that returned Oliver Queen to the land of the living after he had died a few years earlier in his previous series. Uh, and then he stuck around. He did five more issues, uh, 11 through 15, uh, which includes the three-part Sounds of Violence storyline that introduced the villain uh, Onomatopoeia. So that's what uh, we are talking about here. So let me ask you for your hot take. I mean, how... You know, how did you find your uh, your reread? How did it hold up? What what's what's your take? Yeah, um, so I started with I started with Daredevil because uh, I was I was trying to read the the books in chronological order, essentially that you know it, it, the order in which Kevin Smith wrote them and and that they were released. Uh, so I started with with Daredevil. Um, first of all, I, I immediately lost myself in the in the images. I, I can't say enough about Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti's art it's stunning and the way that they tell a story uh, in the art is is so it's just so visually striking and and such a move forward from what we typically think of as as you know 90s comic book art um and i, and I know it's the late 90s but still like there's a reason why uh joe and jimmy were given sort of the keys to this corner of the marvel universe you know daredevil and black panther and punisher and, and, and humans um because what they were doing was just unlike anything that, that anyone else was doing. And, and like you said, you know, deservedly so, he, he earned the, the editor-in-chief position. I think the first time that a, that a creative had really, had really done that, and an artist uh, to boot, you know, because um, several of the editors I know have been writers as well, but I don't think we'd ever seen uh, an artist. Um, what, I was, what I was also drawn in by was, obviously, 
the the dark, dense, sort of claustrophobic opening pages uh, of the story. It's I don't want to say that it's not welcoming to a reader because I don't think that that's fair. It has a sort of a negative connotation, but there's a lot there. And, uh, you know, for a lot of comic book readers, you know, they, they, they want a little bit of text and they want the art to kind of do the rest. And, and Kevin Smith definitely packs those pages, whether it's, you know, this opening letter from Karen to Matt, uh, and then the introduction of the young lady who ultimately was the mother of this baby who would come into Daredevil's life, um, Matt in confession, which is not an atypical scene for, you know, for, for Matt to be in. Um, but there are a lot of scenes that are that are tight and there's a lot of panels on the page and the panels are small and confined. But what I actually really appreciated about it before I had time to, to feel the sense of claustrophobia was by the time he gets through those three particular sequences, he then knows enough to open it up to this giant double-page spread, this bright, airy, daredevil leaping and birds in the way. And it's a release for the reader when you get to that. So it makes me think that this isn't just Kevin Smith being wordy. But rather, I think he's really being intentional about his pacing here. He wants you to feel tight, and then he wants you to release. I think it's manipulation of the reader in the best way possible, in the way that, that comics are really capable of. I think it's skillful. Right on. No, I totally agree. Uh, and what about Green Arrow? What's, the, what's your, your hot take on your Green Arrow reread? Oh, gosh. Um, this, I think, was even better than I remembered it. Um, Again, you know, it's hard because you know, at the time, I didn't know much about Green Arrow. I knew he was an archer. I knew, you know, a little bit. But now with, with you know, almost 20 years of reading DC Comics, I have a much better sense of, of who Ali is and, and the, the, the mythology in that particular corner of the DC universe. And I've read a lot of Green Arrow stories. Um, but I think going back to this one, I think it might still be my favorite um, I, I felt like after a couple of years of writing comics, Smith was really finding his, his groove. He, I mean, I know he chose Phil Hester and Andy Parks as an art team, which is so smart. I mean, they're just so good at what they're doing here. It's a style very, very different from what Joe and Jimmy are doing on, on Daredevil, but it really fits the character. It fits the tone of the book. Uh, it's bombastic and it's big and it's fun uh, in ways that I think a Green Arrow story really should be. Um, I just, I loved it so much. I loved it so much. Right on. I will say, I I feel like for me, Daredevil might have held up better than than Quiver did, though I, I definitely enjoyed them both a lot. I will say, I know we're here to talk about Kevin Smith, but my favorite Green Arrow <laughs> story is the one that immediately followed his run, The Archer's Quest by Brad Meltzer. Um, but w what's interesting is, you know, those first... 21 issues of that Green Arrow run for me are the high watermark of the character and you know not to put down the work of, of the people who follow like I liked a decent bit of Judd Winnick's run uh, immediately after especially when Hester and Parks were still there uh, I, I did enjoy that that early part but uh, I just haven't really connected with it all that much in the years since and uh so so i don't know so again i enjoy these runs but there's also you know it's almost sad to think like well then <laughs> that's kind of it uh but i enjoyed both of both of these stories the daredevil and green arrow uh very much i mean he 
Smith treats these characters as people. And I think that's, you know, the the most important and, and, and best thing that I can say about these stories where, yes, they're costumed adventurers, but uh, again, he writes them as, as actual people and, and flawed people. And, you know, there's a great moment between uh, Black Widow uh, and, uh, and, and Matt early on in Guardian Devil. And, and she says to him, she's like, you know, Matt, you take away the costume. You're, you're just a man. And speaking of, you know, of Black Widow, you know, this is the point in the story where Karen has left him and, you know, he starts to, you know, call, you know, Black Widow on, on, on speed dial. And he thinks to himself, he's like, you know, he acknowledges the fact that even while he was with Karen, he kept one of his exes on, on speed dial, you know? So, and it's the sort of thing, like, it's a very, it's a very human moment, right? And that's what I really enjoyed the most about, um, about both of those stories. I do think, for me at least, you know, Daredevil held up a little bit better. The thing with Quiver is that, you know, so much of the story, and, and it's really interesting, you know, we could talk more about this, the fact that for the vast majority of Quiver, we're not reading Oliver Queen, the real Oliver Queen, right? <laughs> you know, he's brought right. back, we find out that he's brought back in body, but not in soul. And it's only in the at the very end of the story where they're finally reunited. I mean, I really feel like it's that that uh, that second round of, of issues, the Sounds of Violence arc, where, you know, we're really, you know, getting reacquainted with the actual um, Oliver Queen. But so much of Quiver is this returned version of Oliver whose memory stops 10 years ago uh, being hit with all of these instances of people, you know, talking about events that he has no memory of. And he's confused and they're confused by his presence. And we go through that like a good bunch of times. And the first time around, I, you know, it was interesting, right? And you don't know exactly what's happening. You figure maybe some sort of time travel. Like I, I certainly wasn't thinking there was a whole body soul divide going on, but, uh, you know, I think upon reread, it get for me, it got like a little tedious where it's like, okay, like, and especially knowing where it's going. Uh, but again, overall really loved them both and, and loved again, that, that he treated them as, as people. Yeah. I hadn't remembered exactly the circumstances by which Oliver Queen fully returns. I didn't remember exactly what that resolution to the conflict was going to be at the end of Quiver. So I was kind of a, on the ride with, the, the this version of Ollie for most of it. I do agree with you though. I think that I think that it, his uh, his questioning of everybody goes on a little bit too long. Like he's a little slow on the uptake. You know, at, at a certain point, maybe five issues in, so he you'd think that he'd be like, okay, clearly something's going on. I've missed something. Can someone just sit me down and tell me everything I've missed? So I know instead he just keeps like doubting everybody and challenging them and, you know, making them feel like they're crazy for, you know, the, the information that they have that he doesn't have. And I, I, I definitely see that point. But again, since I didn't remember the end, I, I kind of wanted to see the different corners of the DC universe through those eyes. Um, you know, the fact that he, that the fact that he's sort of picking up different acquaintances along the way you know, as he moves his way toward essentially reuniting with everybody um, was fun, you know? No, that's the thing. And, uh, you know, to that point, you know, one of the other things that I, I really dig about both of these runs is that they are very effective encapsulations of uh, Daredevil and Green Arrow themselves, but also their larger world, their supporting cast, the core relationships. 
And again, for both of us, like these were our introductions to the characters. And it's funny because in the that Kevin Smith introduction to Quiver that I was mentioning, he talked about how, you know, the story sold very well. He was he made sure he yeah. pointed that out, that it sold very well. <laughs> but he said that there was some pushback from uh, from readers They're like, oh, this is like so steeped in continuity. Um, but, you know, for me, it worked. And, and, you know, to his credit, it's like, again, this was really my. F- so actually, I have to do the math on this. I think what happened was they announced that he was going to be doing Green Arrow. And I think at that point I went back and I picked up some of the. Uh, Chuck Dixon issues from the previous series. So I think I did grab the issues where Connor is introduced and where Oliver dies. And so I had read some Green Arrow, but I mean, at that point I was reading more, you know, for research sort of like just to kind of bone up and get ready for the, for the yeah. new run. So I still really place this as the first, you know, full on Green Arrow story that I was like there for and, and all in on. And, 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 you know, the way that it's structured and the, and the use of continuity I thought was great. And it's, I don't know. I feel like it's a great example because I know publishers, you know, it, it can be a very, they have a very tricky like push and pull relationship with continuity and, and the role that it should play in their publishing line. And this is something that, you know, we see them go through all the time, but it's like when it's done well and it's done effectively, I mean, you can, you know, you can have a story that is really rooted in the history of the character and what the character has gone through. And, you know, you, you give, it's like you learn as you're reading and you get the context and it informs who the character is. Like, you know, reading both of those stories, like I was never put off by the fact that, you know, I didn't know the history between Karen Page and Matt Murdock, but I got what I needed, you know, through, you know, through, uh, you know, their conversations and through the narration and things like that. So I, I really, I liked that. And, you know, for fans who felt that, you know, there was, it was too continuity heavy. Yeah. That I don't subscribe to. Well, and I think it's important to to remember that you know when when this run of Daredevil came out, it was really unusual for a long running title to suddenly end and start again at number one. I mean, we take that for granted now because you know Marvel in particular, but DC's guilty of it too. I mean, every what six to eighteen issues or so, you know, we're putting a new creative team on, and rather than continuing on, we're starting it at number one. And, and listen, there are benefits to that, and there, but there are also you know some real serious downsides. I think um, so to have Daredevil, right, one of the you know core Silver Age characters to come out of Marvel, to get to issue three eighty unbroken, and then just start with number one, you know, this had to be something big and it had to be to your point, a, a jumping on point for new readers. Right. I mean, I I remember now, you know, after I had read guardian devil going back and and seeing what the issues were like before it. And, and I mean, you want to talk about steeped in continuity. I mean, there's, there's no real making any sense of a lot of it because it really is taking advantage of a lot of that history. Whereas, this run of Daredevil, Kevin Smith's run of Daredevil, um, places Matt and Daredevil, right? That that dual identity, front and center. But if if you know that history, which I do now, I mean, you see it all on display, even the bits that aren't specifically on the page. I mean, Karen is there, and Foggy is there, and Black Widow is there. Um, he's, you know, his friendship with Spider-Man comes back in at the end. Um, Bullseye as an antagonist comes back in. He's got a, a little magical power with, uh, with Dr. Strange. You know, a, a lot of the, you know, the big sort of Marvel movers and shakers he's had associations with are there. There is mention of 
Electra, you know, some of the, the, the former love interests, as you said, he's got this really long romantic history that, that he brings with him. Um, but really at no point does it become overwhelming. At no point is it a barrier to understanding the story. The, the relationships as they're presented at, organically as part of the stories are very, very clear. So as you mentioned, when, when Black Widow is, is brought in as sort of consults, like, what do I do with this baby? Um, the fact that they have a romantic past, but also a you know, sort of superhero team-up past, it's all there. Not overtly, but it's all there. Um, and I appreciate that. I really, I really like the fact that you can read these eight, eight issues and pretty much anything you'd want to know about Daredevil is, is there. I could go off and read the stuff before it at this point. I could continue on with, with the book after that, which is what I ultimately did. Um, and I'm in, right? This, if, if this was a jumping on point, I think it did the job absolutely perfectly. Right. You know, it's, it's funny, you know, talking about, um, cause I, again, I had a similar experience where I did continue on with the title. Um, at this point now I'm a few runs behind, but you know, I was, I was there for Bendis, man. I loved all that stuff and I loved the oh, yeah. run. And I, and I since went back and I, I read all the classic Frank Miller stories as well. And, and, you know, kind of on that note, uh, this story is very similar to born again in that we have a villain who has learned his identity who's putting him through this gauntlet um and really tearing apart these various facets of his life what was really funny is uh and and again i know i haven't been issuing spoiler warnings at the start of these episodes i feel like it's implied (laughs) if we're doing a book club episode spoilers will be discussed but you know we find out ultimately of course that it's spider-man villain mysterio who's been manipulating events in his life and uh and it's and it's funny because Matt like really tears him down, you know, with with his words, and it's a really powerful moment. But Matt says like, you know, what a, like what a cliche plot you had, and it was so interesting to me because I, you know, there's that a little bit of meta commentary there, and I wonder if that was Smith acknowledging like, yeah, I know, like this hits a lot of the same beats of uh, you know of, of Born Again because it definitely has, you know, that that sort of a feel to it. Absolutely, and and. Look, there's there's a direct connection to Born Again. If you have the version of the trade that has that wizard one half issue in it, I don't know if you did. No, I don't have that one. Yeah, so so the version of the trade that I have, you know, Wizard used to put out these like, yeah. you know, they they bag them in with the issue of Wizard magazine, um, and so they include it, and it's it's mostly a prose issue. Um, with like full page art by like a bevy of just, you know, great daredevil artists, artists. Um, and the prose is Kingpin telling Mysterio the entire history of daredevil and, you know, everything you could want to know his real name, where he grew up about, you know, his father, about his love interests, about the enemies he's fought and the trials that he's seen and all of it. And so, we learned that that's where Mysterio was able to get all this information. And even though Kingpin, we see him, I think in like two or three panels throughout the actual story, the fact that he's not really there, which is, which is probably the biggest omission from Daredevil's life, but he's such a big figure that to include him here, he'd probably eclipse everything else. Um, The fact that he's the one who, you know, behind the scenes was feeding uh, Mysterio this information definitely is, you know, a callback directly to born again um i also think mysterio was an interesting character for kevin smith to choose because 
he's a filmmaker, you know, he's a special effects artist on films. And, you know, for Kevin Smith to kind of take this, this oeuvre that he's, you know, known for and, and he, and, and Mysterio even uses some of filmmaking techniques in order to do, you know, some of the things that he does, the illusions that he creates and all that. So to me, that made a ton of sense. It was a totally logical villain, even if, yeah, maybe it was a bit cliche, but again, I don't care. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean that's that's the thing. It's like you know when when Matt says that to to Mysterio, you know, I I don't. Uh, again, I do think there's that element of meta commentary, but I don't think that's yeah. you know Smith, you know. Uh, admitting a shortcoming in the story or anything like that because mm-hmm. uh yes even though it it shares those traits with uh you know with born again you know plot wise at least in terms of of all of that i mean the emotional ramifications of this are you know are are their own and um and and i think really do you know uh, justify the story being told but it was just it was interesting to me um to your point though yeah, I had not read that Wizard one half, um, but you know we do get that explanation right when when Mysterio has his entire bad guy speech exposition dump in uh, <laughs> in that uh, in that one issue, the penultimate issue I believe right it was issue seven. Yes, it is. Yeah, where yeah. Uh, you know we we see that uh, you know he explains that he you know paid Kingpin for the information, and uh, we get I think it's a splash page of all of the you know snapshots of of everything that Kingpin filled him in on. So, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it, it shares that connection and, you know, uh, emotionally, you know, a real strong connection to born again in that, you know, even all of these years later, you still have Matt and Karen, you know, kind of working through her betrayal of him in that story, selling yeah. him out, uh, you know, for drug money at, at her lowest point. So, uh, yeah, definitely, you know, shares a lot of DNA, you know, with that story, uh, I love the choice for Mysterio for a number of reasons, including exactly what you said. Like it made perfect sense, right, for the filmmaker, you know, to to pick that character. Mm-hmm. You know, Daredevil, of course, you know, has a history of, you know, kind of co-opting or sharing villains from, you know, the, the Spider-Man universe, especially, you know, most notably Kingpin. Um, but I also thought like it just it made so much sense that for the hero with heightened senses, you would throw someone at him who has the ability to manipulate that, to hide things from him uh, through his. And it's funny too, right? Because you know, typically illusions are, are are visual, but so like there are numerous instances where you know Mysterio is you know playing with sound and things like that and creating a vacuum. It's like Matt can't hear where the baby is, like all this stuff. It, uh, yeah, I don't know. It made a lot of sense. Plus. I got into Spider-Man with the Clone Saga. So the fact that the Clone Saga got a got a got a mention there, the fact that, you know, Mysterio knew he was dying and he wanted he wanted his big swan song. He wanted to go out in a blaze of glory. He wanted to take down his arch nemesis, but he realized that it wasn't the same Spider-Man he was used to fighting. And so he just decided, like, oh, I'll go after Daredevil instead. But even there, right? The fact that Mysterio always was saw himself as and was treated as a like second-rate villain. You know, in, in much the same way, right? Like Daredevil, you know, generally has not occupied the same space as, you know, uh, some of the other icons in the Marvel Universe. So, like, it, it really made sense to me, like, on a number of levels. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you really think about, like, uh, like Daredevil's rogues gallery, right? I mean, you've got, you know, you've got Bullseye, you've got Kingpin, you've got The Hand, Stiltman maybe next? I don't know, you know, like, he, he, you're right, he doesn't quite have the... The, the robust uh, gallery that, that a lot of other heroes have. I, I thought the explanation of why, why Mysterio chose to go after Daredevil here made total sense, especially because, you know, look, you can ignore what's happening in the larger Marvel universe around you and just do the thing you want to do anyway, or you can figure out a way to uh, explain it in story. 
Um, and I, th- and I thought that Smith is, is, was one of those writers at the time who was able to think about, because he was also a fan to think about like, how is the reader going to take this particular development in the story, right? They're going to question, why'd you do that? Of all the things, like, how could that happen? And he wanted to kind of get out in front of it. You know, not every choice that he made may have been the most elegant, but at least there was an attempt in story to, to explain that away. I want to follow up on, I want to follow up that on on that in a second. Uh, Let's just take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. The Hive Comics and Games is an oasis of nerd fun and events in the heart of Odessa, Texas. Whether it's comic book superhero stories or role-playing in a dungeon, The Hive is where to be. Come tap your mana and face off against the top Magic the Gathering players in West Texas. Hive carries a majority of new comic titles each Wednesday and has all of your favorite titles in their back issue section. Follow them on Facebook at The Hive Comics and on Instagram at The Hive Comic Shop. And we're back. I'm glad you mentioned this idea of, you know, of, of Kevin Smith as a, as a fan. Um, and, and that's, you know, 100% worth mentioning. And I think, you know, you see that on full display in, in both of these runs that we're talking about. Uh, you know, he is a fanboy, but that manifests in the best ways, I think, in these stories. And, you know, it's it's his fandom and it's it's like there's a lot of love for the characters and for comics. And I think you see that you see that come across and. Uh, I mean, in a number of ways. So I loved the fact that uh, the quiver started during final night, which is something that I actually recently covered on my Superman show, Digging for Kryptonite. So I recently reread it. And, you know, what's so cool about that is that opening scene with Superman and Batman, where Superman's lamenting the face, like, this is what cold feels like, right? Because he's lost his powers, the sun is gone. And Batman's like, oh, you must really welcome this opportunity to catalog a new form of pain. And he's like, what are you talking about? And it's this, this great conversation. But what I loved about it, that to me, that opening scene of Green Arrow is, is to me probably the most Kevin Smithy in these two runs. There might, there might be some other contenders, but to me that was like, oh, like this is like, this is what Kevin Smith does. But, you know, and I don't know, you know, haters out there might dismiss that as like, oh, he's like writing like the clerks. But what was what was great is like those they were fully in character right they weren't like dante and randall all of a sudden right from, from clerks <laughs> you know like they still reta- like they had what they were saying to each other a hundred percent rang true of like oh yeah this is probably what batman and superman would say to each other but he is a fan and he and you know again he's you know he's known and noted for his dialogue so it's like yeah like it makes sense he would take the time he would take the pages to have this conversation between the two of them but like it, it you know it works so well and plenty of other instances i think where you see like kevin smith the fan coming out you know the fact that uh, you know after oliver queen makes his reappearance in quiver you know batman's in the bat cave and he's watching the news and he's like oh like the the angle of that shot doesn't look like Connor, like, and he's suspicious and he goes to investigate and it's like, well, yeah, of course he would like, you know, and I feel like that's the sort of thing where if that weren't in the story, a fan reading it, Kevin Smith reading it would have been like, oh, Batman would investigate that. Right. And so he has that happen. And same thing you mentioned before, you know, that moment between Spider-Man and Daredevil at the end of Guardian Devil, it's like, you know, that's one of those relationships, right. That as a fan, you want to see in there and you kind of get that sense, I think, right over the course of both runs where, you know, he, he, and certainly he's had the opportunity. I'm sure he could write whatever he wanted for either of these publishers, but I think he really approached both of these as like, if this is all I'm going to do, 
I'm putting it all in, like all the stuff that I want to see as a fan. And so again, Batman investigating and the Spider-Man Daredevil, like it's all there. It is. Yeah. I mean, and, and especially knowing Kevin Smith as I do now, not personally, obviously, but just from listening to him and watching him and hearing, you know, what, what it is that he loves and values. I mean, Batman's his guy. I mean, he's been, you know, everything started with, for him with Dark Knight Returns and the 1989 Batman movie and, and Batman, we know is his favorite character. And neither of these stories is Batman. Um, oh, but on that but, note, Scott, what are you and I going to discuss on the Patreon exclusive uh, bonus episode? Ah, so while neither of these stories are Batman, a few years after he wrote his Green Arrow run, he did write a miniseries called Batman Cacophony with his childhood friend Walt Flanagan on art, which we're going to be discussing later as a Patreon exclusive. Yeah, so if you want to hear uh, the two of us discuss that, make sure you sign up at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato. And, you know, it's funny because this is only episode three of this podcast. And I don't know if anyone is like, this guy already has a Patreon. He just started. But I've been podcasting for years now. And uh, we've built up this little network here. And, uh, yeah, there's a ton Empire. of... Empire. The word is empire. All right. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so we have a bunch of bonus episodes. And so this is actually going to be the first episode of Extra Credit where uh, we do a little additional reading and discuss it on the Patreon page. So it's at the $1 level. I hope people will uh, will check it out. Anyway. Please continue. Yeah. Um, so I know that Batman is 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 his favorite character. So if he's going to write a Green Hour run, you know he he certainly was not obligated to expand any of that story beyond Green Arrow and his sort of supporting cast. I would expect Black Canary to be in there. I would expect Connor to be in there. I would expect Arsenal to be in there. Beyond that, you know, no obligation. But. You know, he did open it up to the larger DC universe, which I mentioned before is something I really enjoyed. And particularly, I think he makes great use uh, of Batman um, because, damn it, this might be his only chance to do it. So, you know, of course, it's got to be Batman really along for the ride uh, in, in trying to figure out what's going on with Ollie. Because if, if anybody's going to recognize that, okay, this is Ollie, but this isn't Ollie. You know, he's going to, he's going to see it. He's going to write more, even more so than just Ali doesn't seem to remember the last 10 years, but I mean, he goes so far as to, you know, knock him out and, and perform basically like a living autopsy on him, you know, and, and figure out that he has none of the, the battle scars from his entire career of, of superheroing. That seems really fishy. Um, there's just something about him that's not quite as weathered and worn as the Oliver Queen that, that he knew and, and trying to figure out what that means. You know, there's certainly in, in a superhero universe as, as robust and, and old as the DC was at the time, uh, you know, clones, time travel, alternate universes. I mean, there's no end to the possibilities of somebody who's dead suddenly reappearing and, and, you know, is it something nefarious? Is it not? And, and, Yes, Batman has to be the one to, to investigate that. There is no other logical choice. So it gave, I think, Smith a, a chance to play with Batman in a really, really uh, fun way. Um, as for the Spider-Man appearance in, in Daredevil, yeah, not only obviously does it give him a chance to get Spider-Man in there in a little way. I mean, it's, again, it's not, you know, Spider-Man does not play a major role in the Guardian Devil storyline, but, um, you know, he's always been somebody who... Matt has been able to sort of come to for moment for, for comfort for you know sympathy because 
of all the superheroes, Spider-Man just seems to have the most in common. And uh, obviously, as you mentioned before, they share some of some of their rogues. But um, Spider-Man always just seemed to understand what the toll was that being a superhero takes on somebody. What you know, the toll it takes on your family and your relationships and your work and and all of that. And there's this really wonderful scene where Smith pours all of the words into Matt's mouth, and Matt is going on for, I think it's like two full pages about, you know, look at everything that's happened at this point, you know, Karen has died. Foggy was framed for murder and imprisoned. And then eventually, you know, split up with Liz Allen, who he'd been, been with for forever. Um, You know, Mysterio at this point had, you know, really messed with him in every way possible and then killed himself. Um, And he's wondering what it's all for. Why do do I keep putting on the suit and going out and doing this? All it's done is created nothing but misery. And in one sentence, Spider-Man's able to give him that perspective. And he says, you saved that little girl's life, Matt. And that's it. And only Spider-Man, because of the relationship they have, could cut right to the core of why Daredevil does what Daredevil does. And it works. And Matt's able to kind of recenter himself at that point. And the last shot of the book is another one of those open double page spreads of Matt leaping off a rooftop, but he's got a big old smile on his face, right? This is the new daredevil. This is the world that we're going to kind of continue to follow him in. And so I love the fact that it ends with Spider-Man like that. Yeah, well said. Uh, yeah, it was a it was a wonderful scene. Uh, again, for exactly the reasons you said, and and the fact too that you know Spider Man can and, and he does in that scene commiserate over what it's like to you know lose someone you love, and and especially in this case because right this was different than Electra, right? Like Electra was 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 in the life and she had blood on her hands and, and all of that, and she came back. But you know with with Karen, you know uh, you know she had had her own struggles as well, but. You know, she was a, a civilian and, and an innocent, and, and, you know, he was able to offer that. I also thought it was, um, it was funny, you know, Matt's faith, questioning faith, right, is, is, a, is a major theme in the story. And, uh, you know, I, when I, in the previous episode, uh, I had uh, my buddy Jeremy on, and we talked about the Marvel color books, including Daredevil Yellow. And, you know, and between that and now this reread, you know, I I recognize like why I, I I enjoy the character so much because it it really hits on a lot of things for me personally, right? I'm a, I'm a huge Rocky fan, so the whole boxing aspect with battling Jack Murdoch like really resonates with me. Uh, I went to law school, so the legal aspect is is something I, I can I can uh, you know identify with as well. And I, you know, I was raised Catholic, so this whole idea of you know like the Catholic guilt. <laughs> like re- really rings true. And I mentioned guilt because, you know, when we first see Peter, you know, as, as he and Mary Jane are getting ready for the funeral, like he's feeling guilty, right? Like it was his, yeah. you know, it was his enemy who did this and, and then killed himself. Uh, so yeah, I think Matt, Matt and Peter, uh, <laughs> they, they're uh, kind of on the same wavelength in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and, you know, so that's one of the other things, right? You know, uh, Kevin Smith's um, c- Catholicism, I mean, religion plays certainly a massive role, obviously, in, in the Guardian Devil storyline, beginning and ending with Matt, uh, you know, in, in confession. And then yeah. this whole plot that Mysterio has set in motion with this baby that might be the Antichrist and <laughs> might be responsible for all of the misfortune that has suddenly befallen them. Uh, and uh, and then even in, uh, it's not so much, you know, uh, 
hitting Catholicism on the head, but definitely religion and spirituality on, on the, in the Quiver storyline where we find out that the soul of Oliver Queen is still uh, in you know, very like Judeo-Christian view of, of what the afterlife would be. You know, Jason Todd swinging around and Barry Allen shows up and yeah. you know, everybody's happy and together. <laughs> Uh, so that was, you know, so that's certainly, you know, the idea of, of, of religion and faith and spirituality. I mean, that is definitely, uh, you know, a driving theme uh, in both. And I thought was, uh, you know, was interesting for sure. And it's like, you know, this is the guy who made dogma. It's like, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and religion's always been something in, in, in Daredevil's life because, you know, I was explaining this to my, my 12 year old son, because we started watching the, the Daredevil Netflix series together. And, and he was really taken with the elegance of the Daredevil origin. And we were talking about how Daredevil is, you know, he, he's, um, he's a walking dichotomy. I mean, he's, you know, a man of faith who dresses as the devil, you know, he's a lawyer. So he's, you know, a man of the law, but then he takes the law into his own hands every night. Um, and so, you know, he he knows what he's doing is right, but then he also feels tremendous guilt over it. Um, you know, th- th- he's, there's always this push and pull with Daredevil. I and and one of the things I've always liked about it, and and to my memory, I know that church church imagery plays a large role in a lot of Daredevil stories, but this is the first time where I felt like it really was in the fabric of that art. Um, uh, I know it influenced the look of the 2004 film a lot. Not that the film is so great, but, you know, certainly the church imagery really, really works. And it definitely borrows panels right out of this. I, um, I won't uh, I won't take us down <laughs> a huge tangent, but and, you know, for people who have heard me defend the Zack Snyder movies, it's, I guess I'm not I'm not I'm no stranger to having some, you know, uh, sometimes a controversial opinion on a movie. I, I didn't mind the Daredevil movie and the director's cut is actually quite good, I think. I'll leave it at that. But but yeah, definitely. Yeah, you you, yeah. De- you really see that influence, uh, you know, on, on the movie as well. Um, and yeah, they really play that up in this story. Uh, you know, there's a really powerful scene where, uh, you know, an injured Matt has has made his way to the, the mission shelter that that his mother, you know, Maggie, the nun, um, you know, works at. And, and they have, you know, it's it's a really interesting conversation where, you know, Matt says, you know, because Maggie is still you know, denying the fact that she or not acknowledging the fact that she's his mother. And he's like, look, can we just, can we just like have an honest conversation once, you know? And it's, and it's really interesting. And, you know, for Matt in particular, like he, you know, he lets a lot of anger out, right. And results in him getting slapped. But it's like, boy, you understand why he's angry. I mean, to be abandoned, you know, by your mother, period, but to be abandoned so that she could serve, a God that you have very mixed feelings about and towards must really mess with your head. And I feel like all that anger and that frustration like really comes across in that scene. Absolutely. And, and, and that's one of the things I appreciate about using the church as, as, as a central setting in this daredevil story. I mean, all daredevil stories, but, but this one in particular, because it, it did allow for those moments with sister Maggie or, mother Maggie for him. Um, it allows him to sit in a confessional and, you know, speak truths that he doesn't generally speak to other people outside of that particular context. Um, and, you know, you understand why he has trouble maintaining his faith. You know, some real bad stuff has happened to this guy over the course of his life. And, you know, to, to have to wonder, you know, what, 
benevolent God would allow this to happen first to me when I was a boy, you know, this accident that, that blinded me, you know, taking my father away from me at a young age, you know, my mother abandoning me. Um, and then, you know, even when I'm trying to do good, both as an attorney and as a, as a, as a costumed crime fighter, you know, you keep throwing tragedy my way. And, and, you know, how do you reconcile that? And it, and it does come out with Maggie. And as you said, she, you know, is, is very stern with him about not, you know, blaspheming and, you know, speaking against God. But, but I understood that side of it more than I understood Maggie's defense of, of God. Are you referring to the story of the, uh, the monk and the, and the knight? Uh, perhaps. <laughs> so it's funny. And, you know, one of the reasons why I love doing, you know, both of these podcasts, this and Digging for Kryptonite, like revisiting these, you know, Superman stories and comics and then these comics, you know, uh, on this show, you know, you see how much your perspective shifts with, you know, with time and your different point in your life. And I feel like the, the story of the, the monk and the knight swayed me more when I was younger as yeah. I read it now, not so much, right? So for anyone who, you know, needs a quick refresher, right? We have these, you know, uh, the, this is the little parable that Maggie tells him where, you know, you have the, the monk who, you know, lives a simple life and is pious and, and you know, follows, uh, you know, the, the religion and then a knight who, who, who doesn't and indulges and, and all of that. And the knight says to the monk, you know, like, what happens when you die and you find out this was all for nothing? And the monk is like, well, I'll be sad, but what happens when you die and you find out that it is true? And just like that, Matt, <laughs> Matt has seen the light. You know, there was a, again, I was raised Catholic and uh, I remember in my, in a high school religion class, we learned about Pascal's wager. Mm -hmm. You're familiar with this, right? Basically yeah. this idea of like, and you know, this is my understanding of it. And if I, if I've gotten it wrong, I, I apologize. But like, basically like you should, you should believe like just in case, like just in case it all turns out to be true, you should believe. I never, even, even then, even in high school, that never made sense to me because if not to get, well, you know, it's appropriate. We're talking about this to get religious yeah. for a second. It's like, if there is a God and, and God exists in the way that, you know, religion teaches, it's like, would that God not want the belief to be genuine? Like the idea that you could kind of like <laughs> game the system by like believing just, just in case never made sense to me. And the fact that it, uh, and that's what it, this story made me think of. And uh, yeah, the fact that Matt was so taken with it, I don't know, that that didn't necessarily ring yeah. true. But I know there was a lot, a lot wrapped up in him. I think honestly, it might've just been the fact that his mother told him a story. I, I think that might, you know? Well, I, I think at that moment also, he's he's getting a lot of what he wanted from her, which is, you know, what does a mother do to her child? She teaches him, she coaches him, she guides him. And that's exactly what she's doing here. She's, she's behaving the way that he always imagined that his mother would behave, you know, taking her, taking him essentially like, you know, on her knee and, uh, and, and telling him stories. And so I, I think, you know, he gets to revert to the childhood that he really didn't have in that moment. And, and that's the catharsis even more, I think, than the religion part of it is, um, you know, yeah, uh, no, I'm with you. And, you know, kind of continuing this thread over with uh, with Green Arrow, you know, again, like, you know, like I said before, I mean, Quiver's really interesting in that, you know, we don't find until, uh, you know, deep into the story, right, that Oliver has been, you know, his body is back, but his soul is still in heaven. 
so and really it isn't until the final you know the, the last issue of quiver where they're finally reunited and we get oliver fully back there were a couple of things about that that, that were interesting slash a little problematic for me the idea <laughs> that oliver wouldn't want to come back initially was a, and but that he would allow parallax at the time right to bring back his body didn't really ring true but i could kind of get behind it but the idea that he would need as much coaxing as he did from his body praying to him <laughs> at the end of the story when when he and connor are like really in a jam that that was a little odd to me i don't know that didn't that didn't quite uh it's funny though it's weird to say like oh it didn't really jive with my version my vision of the character this set my vision of the character but even <laughs> but like even within that it was like yeah. I, like would you really need to be like like they twisted this guy's arm to, <laughs> to save to come back yeah, I mean, it, it, it doesn't feel particularly super heroic um, to, you know, two people, one of whom is, I guess, technically you, you, yourself, um, and your son um, are in dire jeopardy. And, you know, the super heroic thing to do is to sacrifice whatever meager need you have at that point and, and save them. On the other hand... <sighs> I tried to understand it from the perspective of, you know, if this sort of Judeo-Christian notion of heaven is where Ali's soul has been for the last 10 years, and it's as peaceful as he makes it seem it is, seem like it is. Plus, he's got a bunch of people up there. You know, he's got Barry up there, as you said, you know, a couple of the other heroes and other people in his life. Um I understand him not wanting to leave. I, I you know, I kind of get that. Like I did my time. Uh, it's someone else's time now. And I get that people are in need, but like, if I, if I, you know, tried to return every time, every time something happened that required my aid, then, you know, I'll never die. <laughs> if, if there were no Connor, I would, I would be on board with that. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is maybe perspective as, as a new father. It's like, yeah. You know, and, and even putting aside the fact that, like, they have to twist his arm to come back in the end to save Connor, even that aside, just the opportunity to get to know this son. But in, in any event, it, it was interesting. And you know what? In fairness, you know, these, like I said before, like, one of the things I love about these stories is that, you know, Smith treats these people as, you know, they're very flawed men. So it's like... Yeah. No, that's not the most heroic thing, but maybe it is kind of human, right? And, you know, this was, you know, he was tired. He had been through a lot. And like you said, he, you know, he was in paradise. So, you know, so I, I think, you know, we, you know, we can certainly make sense of it. But yeah, it was, it didn't paint him in the best light, but maybe it did paint him in, in a, in a realistic one, you know, in, in this, you know, fantastical story, but, but still. Yeah. Um, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say perhaps Smith wanted to, um, really kind of push the notion of what a huge sacrifice this would be so that when he made the sacrifice, it felt appropriately huge. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, that makes, um, no, I, no, I do agree with that. Uh, you know, I also, I give Smith a lot of credit because, you know, with, with guardian devil, you know, he didn't really have, you know, there wasn't like continuity cleanup he had to do, right? This was about just no. like, tell a, tell a strong story that people are going to be excited about and they'll buy this book, you know? Uh, and he did a magnificent job, obviously, you know, with, yeah. with Green Arrow, like he had to bring Oliver Queen back, right? That was the mandate with this. But I give him credit because, you know, he really, 
Like he made it harder on himself than he needed to. Like you could have, there, there are so many different ways, right? Like that you could have brought Oliver Queen back. I mean, you know, DC had dropped some breadcrumbs in the, in the years prior, uh, you know, in that, uh, uh, parallax special that came out during uh during the final night right before he goes to meet his end uh he visits the grave of oliver queen so we we have that moment and then in the final issue of the chuck dixon green arrow series we revisit that moment and we see uh what appear to be two pairs of boots or you know two different boots at the grave of oliver so it's like okay something's going on here but that's not a lot they could have explained that away in, in another way or they could have easily just said you know hal brought him back and that's it i mean he really took Oliver on a journey, you know, to, to return. And, and I appreciate that. And I was thinking about it. It was interesting that the, the soulless husk, the, you know, that, uh, that comes back, right. Is the hard traveling heroes version of the character. And I think, you know, on the one <laughs> hand, you can probably chalk that up to, you know, that's probably Kevin Smith's favorite version, or at least he has affinity for that version. And he wanted to play around with uh, the real social activist who has taken down the the fat cats and and all of that. And that works. And that's, you know, that's certainly uh, effective. But I think it's also interesting in terms of, you know, kind of explaining who Oliver Queen is and what he's been through and the history. It's it's a clever way to do it, right? Because he's, you know, especially if you're a new reader, Right, like you might not have that backstory. Well, he doesn't have his own backstory, and so you're kind of learning it together. So I, I dug that. What do you think? No, I, I agree, and I think there's a, probably a couple of reasons for that. Number one, you know, again, being sort of a new-ish comic book writer and not knowing how long the comic book world would be willing to, you know, accept him, you know, to keep him in in their fold before you know booting him back to the film world. Um, I, I feel like you know he wanted to say everything about the DC universe that he ever wanted to say in this, to touch the stories that meant a lot to him. You really do see lots of evidence of Kevin Smith, the fan in this, but you know, we mentioned before, you know, him making Batman a much larger component of the story than he really needed to be. Um, the <laughs> fact that he does, he, you know, he really does a lot with, with the, the, the Ollie Hal Jordan relationship, even though Hal Jordan is in a very different place than he was during the Denny O'Neill, uh, Neil Adams, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, Hard Traveling Heroes run. Um, you know, he made the most of it. He, you know, he really used Hal, I thought, as well as you could, given where Hal was at the time in the position of being the Spectre. Um, you know, there's an, there's an issue in that run that focuses very much on Jason Blood and Etrigan in that super supernatural corner of the DC universe. He calls the anatomy lesson which steals its title directly from probably Alan Moore's most famous Swamp Thing issue 21, the anatomy lesson. And Jim, you really are getting to see like, what are those DC touchstones for Kevin Smith that he had to bring in and, and, and say in case those 10 issues were it for him. For sure. And you know, it, it ends up being this really fun tour through the DC universe and through these core relationships. And, uh, you know, like, you know, again, it was our introduction to Green Arrow, but I think even if you were new to DC, you know, if like if you were a Marvel fan and you, you know, you liked his stuff on Daredevil and you're like, all right, I'll give this a try. I mean, of course, and, you know, that's what's interesting, the fact that he, you know, took on these two characters, you know, two less prominent, grounded, street-level, very flawed <laughs> vigilantes. Like, they, they share a lot of that uh, that DNA. And, you know, so it makes sense that he would, uh, you know, work on the two of them the way he did. Um, I have to confess, I, I, with Etrigan, I can't stand (laughs) 
the rhyming. My like whenever this guy, whenever this demon shows up, it's like, oh, my God. And the funny thing mm -hmm. is, it's like I only have to read it. But I always think to myself, I'm like, oh, the, you know, unless the writer like really enjoys it. And that's one thing. But I always think to myself, it's like, ugh. I just think about like if I <laughs> if I were tasked with writing a story and editorial was like, you got to throw it. I'd be like, God damn it. It's like, <laughs> I don't want to have to rhyme. <laughs> I've never liked it. I'll be honest. I. I actually have to say I agree with you completely. Um, the the Etrigan dialogue was my least favorite aspect of the entire story, and I'll tell. But I'll tell you why. I, I don't mind rhyming on principle. However, um, for for any listeners who don't know, I am a high school English teacher by trade, so I teach poetry as part of my job. Etrigan is supposed to speak in rhyming couplets, and Kevin Smith starts him off speaking in rhyming couplets and then somewhere in like the end of the first issue that Etrigan appears in these rhyming couplets start expanding to these structureless gatherings of words that you can tell like he just needed to get the rhyme to match but didn't care about the syllables the cadences and so you've got these very very long phrases that that are impossible to untangle. I, I also actually sort of blame the letterer because if you're going to ask the reader to sort of pause and stop on those rhyming words, then those rhyming words need to be at the end of a line in the speech balloon. And because they often came in the middle of a line, the reader's never really sure where they're supposed to stop, pause, rhyme, etc. So the rhyme just, I think, completely fell apart um, to the point where I, I, I half the time I didn't even understand what Etrigan was trying to say. You know, I've, I, uh, other than some high school English class, I've never studied poetry <laughs> yet. Yeah. Even though I couldn't articulate what you just did, I knew as I was reading it that something had changed. Uh, yeah. But my goodness, Scott, this poor letterer had a hard enough job. <laughs> imagine, um, listen, imagine if you had Kevin Smith level of a uh, Kevin Smith volume of dialogue and narration to cram into a page. This poor guy is doing the best he can. <laughs> but uh, wait, no, your point is true. good. Uh, but oh, and I, I also just wanted to mention with uh, with Hal, uh, and we we can never repeat this to to uh, my friend Rich Roney, who I know we've we've all podcasted together. Yeah, know, he loves he loves Hal Jordan. He loves Hal Jordan and and loves him as Green Lantern. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's a whole other discussion about you know the path that that DC took Hal Jordan on. But I this period mm -hmm. of time where he was the Spectre and he was playing this role, uh, you know, this was also around the same time where uh, he put the genie back in the bottle for Wally West, restored his secret identity. He was playing this role in the DC universe. I liked that. I did like him as a Spectre because I never had any real affinity for or attachment to the Spectre before. And to be honest, with you know starting to read comics in the you know early to mid-90s, I really had no affinity for Hal Jordan, to be honest. So him becoming the Spectre like, was kind of cool, and then it added this whole other layer to these interactions with the other characters in the DC universe, the history they had had, yeah. the betrayal he had committed, his, uh, his act of redemption during Final Night, which you know Batman was still not completely sold on. <laughs> uh, so I actually I liked it, and I loved the role that he played in this story. And, and it's like, of course, you would have to have the other hard-traveling hero, even though he's at a very different place. But, uh, you know, and I'm not even saying that I wish he had stayed the Spectre. I think... 
you know, obviously, and DC's had, you know, magnificent success restoring him as Green Lantern. And I've liked a lot of those stories, but at least for the time that it lasted, I did enjoy this role that he served in the DC universe. I thought it was cool. What about you? Yes. I mean, even though you and I are a little bit far apart in, in age by about, a, I think about a decade or so, um, I, I entered the Green Arrow book almost at the exact same point that you did in that I, so I was, I was actually not a DC reader at all. Um, I didn't, I didn't know a lot about the wider DC universe. I'd read, you know, some Superman stories, a little bit of Batman, but you know, the, the, the B or C level characters, I really didn't know other than in sort of name and appearance, you know, backstories, no, no clue. Um, so in that sense, if you actually follow the arc of Kevin Smith, the, the comic book writer, I'm probably exactly what both Marvel and DC were hoping for when they hired him to write their comic books, because I was just, I was right at that age where I was, you know, enamored of his films. They, I mean, they certainly advertised the hell out of it. Um, in every publication they, they had, right? So I hopped on Daredevil immediately. I have Kevin Smith's writing, I'm on it. Um, and I ate that up. And it was, for me, not, not necessarily an introduction to anything in the Marvel Universe that I wasn't already a little bit familiar with, although it really did give me a sense of, of who Daredevil was. And, and we really do need to remind ourselves uh, and the listeners that Daredevil was... I even hesitate to say a B-level character at the time. I'd say more of a C-level character um, before there was a Netflix show, before there was a Ben Affleck movie. Like he really wasn't, he certainly wasn't an A-lister. Um, this put him up there. And as you said, I mean, he almost, he really hasn't dropped down since in the last 20 years. I mean, really has remained, whether it's Bendis's run after that or Brubaker's run and Mark Wade had a run and, you know, now Chip Zdarsky's writing. I mean, it, it, it's one great run after another. Um, once I had enjoyed that run and a year later to find out that he's going to be writing Green Arrow, I was not interested in Green Arrow per se. I was interested in Kevin Smith. And so DC was very smart to capitalize on this comic book fan base that he had built with Daredevil. And I moved right over to Green Arrow. And if he had just written a Green Arrow story, I probably would have enjoyed it. I'm sure it would have been great. And I would have maybe continued reading some Green Arrow, but he didn't do that. He knew that he was going to be bringing over some fans who weren't really familiar with the DC universe. So by putting all that stuff in there, not only is he exercising, you know, all, all, all of the ideas in his head and, you know, getting out all the th that he wants to say about the DC universe, but he's introducing new readership to it. So I didn't know Hal Jordan very well. Um, I didn't know Hawkman and the JSA, and there's a whole issue that features them. Um, I didn't know Black Canary. I didn't really know Arsenal. I didn't know Connor. Um, I, I just didn't know. And it was so much fun to get to experience the DC universe through Ollie's eyes. And I think that's why ultimately I was okay with him taking as long as he did to understand that he's been dead for 10 years because while he's 
trying to figure that all out, it allowed time for me as a reader to ask the same questions about the DC universe that that version of Ollie was asking. So I, I, it didn't bother me as much as it bothered you because I imagine you probably knew a lot of the answers that he was searching for. Yeah, I mean, certainly to an extent. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's fair to say. I think in terms of the wider DC universe, yeah, I didn't need as much, you know, I didn't need hand-holding necessarily. Like, I was reading the JSA book at the time and loving it. And so, but, you know, it's like, you know, I think we still both enjoyed the JSA, you know, uh, bits of, of the Green Arrow run, but mainly in different ways, right? Like, for me, it was cool. It's like, oh, these are the characters I'm reading in, in this other book. Uh, but a lot of the... Uh, again, like the Green Arrow supporting cast and those relationships, a lot of that was new to me. So for me, it was it was a little bit of a mix. I will say, though, I do think, you know, for reasons you said and that we've been talking about, I, I do think it, it ultimately was effective to bring Oliver back the way he did and, and to take the time that he did. But I'll also say that I think it, you know, this was not a case of, you know, what, you know, what's a common criticism, right. Of writing for the trade. I mean, and I think, yeah. you know, when you're reading this monthly, it's maybe not so, uh, you don't feel the repetition so much when you have 30 days in between, but, you yeah. know, sitting down now and again, knowing the outcome of it. And I remember it fairly well. I mean, I've read it a few times over the years. So that's to me where I say, like, it got a little tedious of the whole, like, you know, again, someone says something, like, what are you talking about? Like <clears throat> over and over, but certainly I think on a monthly basis, you know, and, and again, for, you know, especially for readers who were new to Green Arrow, but especially to DC, you know, I do think that uh, it made sense. I also give him credit too, because, you know, he, you know, he brought back Oliver and, and he took the time to do it, uh, you know, the way he did, as opposed to, you know, he really could have taken any number of shortcuts to bringing him back. And I give him credit for taking the time, but he also added, you know, he, he created the character of, uh, of Mia who would go on to become uh, speedy uh, and the subsequent writers on the books, you know, really did a lot with her Judd Winnick in particular. Uh, I don't know what, if any space she occupies in the current DC universe. So I don't know what the ultimate legacy has been, but for at least a period of time, uh, you know, she played a big role in, you know, in the Green Arrow supporting cast. So, you know, I thought that was great. And, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the, the backdrop of all this is this mystery of the Star City Slayer, right? Uh, this this unknown, you know, figure who's abducting and, and killing kids in, in Star City. And I thought that he, I thought he was able to really, to walk a, a really fine line there where, you know, it's a, it was a solid mystery and I think it had a, you know, it had a pretty good payoff, but it wasn't overpowering. Like it was just enough, like the mystery of Oliver's return. That's the main thrust of the story. And that's what yeah. it needs to be. Right. Um, but, uh, but you also had this going on in the background and it, of course it all comes together in the end where we find out that, you know, Stanley Dover, the, you know, Oliver's, uh, is the new benefactor is, is actually the star city slayer. And we get an update on Stanley and his monster, which I had was not familiar with uh, at all <laughs> prior to this. Me either. Uh, you know, and, and of course, you know, we uh, we find out that Stanley was trying to uh, take over Oliver's body, and that's you know sort of the other uh, factor that finally gets Oliver to to come back. But I, I thought that was well done in terms of having you know kind of you know plot wise, like having something that's you know kind of move things along a little bit, but not overpower. I thought it was a good balance. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if he's going to bring in as many elements of the DC universe as he does, it may not have been a wise choice to, you know, bring to the fore 
uh, Oliver's arch enemy or something, you know, bring Merlin in or something like that. You know, that, that, that was probably a good idea. I mean, he brings a couple of minor villains, you know, Black Manta plays a minor role in there for a moment. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think having, having the villain hiding in plain sight <laughs> through most of the story, I also thought was a really smart move. Um, it's not, it's, it's not a flashy villain. Um, you know, he doesn't have a, a costume or a name or anything like that. He just is this, you know, old man who, you know, would rather inhabit a young, strong body. And that makes, that makes sense. Um, so I, yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed that. Um, it's funny too, to, to, to mention that that particular element of it, the, you know, the whole sort of putting your soul in another body and all that, that, that supernatural element to it, because both of these stories, the daredevil and the green arrow have this distinctly supernatural element to it to them. Uh, and I wonder if this is in part Smith sort of working out his own feelings about religion and the supernatural and the occult. And, you know, it, it seems like he's trying to, you know, trying to reconcile within himself something that he, that was on his mind at the time. Um, yeah. Just a thought. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that makes sense. And, you know, not 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 the same note but there's something that i was thinking about you know we've already talked about religion a little bit so uh, let me break another rule and and just uh i'll get get the tiniest bit political for a second where (laughs) in the guardian devil storyline right again as we said part of mysterio's plot is uh you know trying to convince matt and and karen right that uh this this baby that's been entrusted to matt is is the antichrist and is responsible for karen which we haven't even mentioned this yet but uh you know karen shows up she's received a diagnosis that she's hiv positive you know we later find out that mysterio gave her that but it seems to be somewhat of an open question mysterio says he's like you know maybe she does maybe she doesn't she should have gotten a second opinion so that's never like definitively answered but you know, yeah. we do know that that he was behind that. I will say, this is not the political part. They do use HIV and AIDS interchangeably. Yes. And uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe that's a result of, you know, we've had now 20, 20 plus years to understand it better, but in any event. But uh, in particular, you know, uh, Mysterio in his, in his disguise, right, he goes to Karen and he, um, again, tries to convince her of the threat of this baby. And it goes through this whole thing about like, you know, you've been, you know, it's been years since, you know, the, the events that, uh, uh, you know, might have led to, you know, you contracting HIV and you're tested all the time. Like, it can't be that. It must be something else. And, you know, uh, again, uh, it just made me think of recent political events over these past few years of fear-mongering, right? Like this idea of, it couldn't possibly be your fault. Like there must be, like there must be something. There must be something that we can pin it on. And it's, and it works on Karen. I mean, we find out that Matt had been exposed to this, you know, toxin that was, you know, interfering with his thoughts and his emotions. Unless I missed something, I don't think Karen was as well. Uh, and, but so. she seems to kind of succumb to this thinking of like, oh, it, you know, it, it, it must not, you know, it must be this baby. I just, it just made me think of that, especially in light of everything we've gone through uh, in, in recent real world events. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I really stopped to, to question it at the time, but, but now that you say it, it, it yeah, I, it, you're, you're making me think. Um, I, you know, I, I did wonder in general about the use of, of Karen as a character in, in Guardian Devil. Um, there are times where I think 
she's really well used. I mean, he uses her largely as a framing device. I mean, the, the, the story begins with a letter that she writes to Matt. Um, there's a diary entry that she writes in the middle of the story. And then we end with another short letter uh, to Matt. So she's used a bit as a, as a framing device. Um, she's not in as much of the story as I remembered her being in. Um, and part of me felt like she was there just to die. Um, and it, you know, that, that sort of brought me back to, uh, you know, an idea that was very prevalent in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, you know, this idea of fridging, mm-hmm. you know, a term that Gail Simone coined, uh, where, you know, usually a female, a love interest or friend or acquaintance family member of a male hero is killed to further the, the emotional arc or the plot of, of, of the male character. And while I think her death is, it's affecting, it's, you know, shocking. It's beautifully illustrated. I, I couldn't help but wonder this time around knowing everything that I know if it didn't have a little bit of that element of fridging to it. And I wasn't sure what your take on that was. Yeah, I know. I was thinking that too. I, you know, it's tough. I, I know this is like kind of a tricky thing, you know, to, to discuss and, and, you know, I've, you know, I'm certainly aware of this, you know, the, the this whole idea of, you know, women in refrigerators and, and, and exactly what you just said. And yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah. I don't know really where I come down necessarily, you know, in this story. I mean, it, it, like you said, I mean, it is very moving. And I mean, you know, her death itself and then the aftermath, I mean, the, you know, the utter despair that you see Matt going through, like we talked about before. And, and, you know, that's an instance where, you know, Kevin Smith really lets the art, you know, tell that story. And then, you know, Matt being unable to even deliver, you know, a eulogy, Mm -hmm. he's just so, you know, overcome. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe it does sort of fall into that category of, you know, it, it, it moves his, it moves his story along um, where she doesn't really have a ton to do herself in the story. I mean, she, her final act is, is a heroic one, right? Like, you know, she and Maggie work together to try to, uh, you know, get the baby out of there. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, I guess when I say it's tricky and I guess maybe why I'm like kind of stumbling over my words a little bit is that, you know, I, I do think it's it's a little dangerous to look at, you know, any instance of something like this and say, well, it's just fridging and it serves no purpose. I mean, and so that's where it's, you know, it's it's a little tricky, um, you know, so I don't know. I have to kind of think about that a little bit more, but it's a it's a good question to ask. And, you know, I'd be curious to know what other people will think. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there are articles out there about it. I haven't really come across my, you know, any myself that specifically address like her death and, and you know, kind yeah. of how it plays into that whole that whole argument. Well, I, you know, I, I don't know where I've come down on this issue either. I, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm, my intention was only to ask the question. Yeah, that's a good um, one. But I, but, you know, she comes into the story and she comes into it with all of the baggage of the last bunch of years that, you know, she had been, you know, most notably sort of a prostitute and a, and a, and a, and a, a pornographic film actress and, you know, there there seems she seems to be in there with those details 
uh, not completely free of some of the stigmas that were attached to, and still are, unfortunately, to, to sex work. Um, and so, you know, then to have the revelation that, you know, there's this, you know, giant word balloon that says, I've got AIDS, you know, and, and, and it is big. And, and you're right, it, it, it is not synonymous with being HIV positive, and they do use them interchangeably. Um, but I think the implication was that, you know, she contracted HIV because of this behavior. And mm -hmm. we know that it's sexually transmitted, but, you know, to say that just because somebody was, you know, promiscuous or se sexually active, you know, I, I almost got this slight sense that, like, the implication was that she was deserving of this punishment. And then as a result, like, of course, the only thing that could reasonably happen to her is that she should pay for those sins by, by dying. And I was mildly, mildly bothered by it. It didn't take me out, out of the story completely and it didn't ruin anything for me, but you know, it did cross my mind. Yeah, no, I mean, I think all of those points are valid. I mean, it, it, it is interesting. And you know, there's that one scene in particular where, you know, she's trying to convince Matt, right? Like, oh, like it is the baby, right? And he lashes right. out at her and he throws all of it all of yeah. it in her face, right? Essentially saying what you were, you know, just describing, like this idea, like, hey, you're, you only have yourself to blame. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, again, you know, we have, you know, going back to the Frank Miller run, you know, this this famous instance of one of Matt's loves, you know, being killed. And so, you know, again, I don't know if, if it was, you know, an attempt, like we were talking about before, to kind of, you know, raise the stakes in a similar sort of way with this storyline, but, you know, at, at what expense? I mean, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Again, I think it was very moving, very affecting, you know, well told. Um, but yeah, sort of where it falls in that larger conversation, uh, you know, I, I guess is, uh, you know, is debatable. I will say, though, she at least has, I feel like this, I mean, you know, of, of course, you know, she, uh, you know, given the end that she meets, you know, maybe not. But uh, you know who I really felt got uh, shortchanged in all of this? Foggy. Yeah. He yeah. Foggy really, you know, he, I feel like <laughs> Foggy was sort of like, we need something else bad to happen to Matt. So it's like, yeah, yeah Foggy's arrested for murder. Like that just kind of felt, uh, you know, he, he didn't really obviously didn't have much of a, a role to play, uh, you know, in the story. No, but I actually liked that little side plot. Uh, and, and, and I'll tell you why, because when Foggy is framed for the murder of this woman, Lydia, who he's sleeping with and, you know, is having this affair, uh, you know, when he's arrested, his mother, who is the head of the law firm that both Nelson and Murdoch work for, doesn't want anything, anything to do with him, doesn't really want to take part in defending him, isn't going to try to get him out, nothing. And so now it gives Foggy a reason to break away from her professionally, and Matt quits. And so what it sets up for the end of this story and for Daredevil moving forward is that, you know, at the end of the story, Matt is left with this money that Karen had, had left for him. So he, he can buy this, this lot and, and build a new law office that's just Nelson and Murdoch, free of Sharp, um, you know, Foggy's mother. So I liked the Foggy plot in so much as it, it sets up a new status quo for Matt and Foggy professionally. Right on. And, you know, going back to this idea of them as, as people, you know, what I did like about the Foggy storyline is yes, he was framed, but 
you know, he was stepping out on, you know, on, on Liz Allen and having a relationship with a client, which ethically is, is a no, no. And, you know, it really, you know, again, he doesn't have a lot of screen time, but you know, that, that scene with, uh, you know, with Liz, you know, towards the end where he's like, you know, I, I didn't do it. I told you like, and she's like, but, but you did spend the night with her and you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. So, uh, again, that certainly was a powerful moment and I agree about what it set up in the future, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, overall he, uh, you know, he didn't have a, a ton to do, but served, you know, a, a useful function in the story. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, what else, what else was, were on your notes? Cause I know you had notes that, uh, you, you oh my gosh, my notes, my notes went everywhere. Um, no, I, 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 you know, in, in, in going right from Daredevil into Green Arrow and, and to sort of pick up on my thoughts about Karen, um, Mia actually shares a few things in common with, with Karen um, in that when we meet her, she is a teenage prostitute. Um, she doesn't want to be. I mean, she's sort of forced into the life, but but she's a teenage prostitute whom Ollie, you know, rescues. Um, and if I remember correctly, after Kevin Smith's run, um, I think it's either I think it was somewhere in Judd Winnick's run. Yeah, it was, which would make sense. Yeah, considering you know his relationship with Pedro Zamora, Mia is. Uh, it's revealed that she's HIV positive. Yeah, um, which I know Kevin Smith didn't didn't attach to the character, but, but she went on to, to do that. So it's an interesting little bit of, you know, sort of cross company continuity that, that those characters sort of shared that. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very, you know, uh, dark and, you know, I think sadly, you know, realistic background that is, you know, is painted for her. And and a lot of that comes out in her conversation with her, her pimp slash boyfriend, you know, Richard. And uh, I don't know if you watched the HBO series, the deuce, I did not. It's a great show. It's from the creator of The Wire, and it examines the uh, prostitution and the rise of porn in Manhattan in the in the seventies and eighties. It's fascinating, and uh, you know a lot of the dynamics that you see uh, play out on the show in that you know pimp prostitute uh, you know uh, relationship you see at play there. I mean the mind games that he plays with her, and she's a kid. I mean it's you know, it's, but yeah. you know she uh, after her encounter with Oliver, you know she fights back, right? And and uh, you know she goes to live with Oliver and work at the at the shelter uh, that where, where he is. So you know, and then of course you know would ultimately go on to become Speedy. So it was nice to see her go on that journey. And and again, like that was something Kevin Smith added. And you know, I think maybe this will we'll unpack this more when we do our extra credit episode because I think it's a natural, you know, jumping off Absolutely. point. But he introduces a new villain, you know, yeah. in, in his in his final issues. And, you know, this idea of the rogues gallery, you know, when we think of the great rogues galleries in comics, we think of Batman and we think of Spider-Man and we think of the Flash and we don't necessarily think, you know, Green Arrow or even Daredevil, right? They're, they have some heavy hitters, but it's not like a deep bench. Uh, so I thought it was cool that he gave Oliver like a, a pretty interesting and, uh, you know, unnerving villain in Onomatopoeia, this character that only speaks in in Onomatopoeia, like the sounds that he hears. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that was really cool. And, you know, like I said before, I really liked those final five issues because we he was finally writing the actual Oliver. And there were some great moments. I mean, you know, he tries to, you know, rekindle his relationship with, 
with Black Canary, and we have <laughs> yes. some great interactions with Hawkman. You know, and I guess going back to this idea of, of politics, you know, the ultimate yep. liberal and the ultimate conservative, and <laughs> you know, Dinah is, is so worried that they're going to be at each other's throats, and initially they're yucking it up, they're having fun, they're laughing. There's, I mean, there's some funny stuff there where Oliver's like, you know, yeah, you know, we're bonding, like we both died, and then he says to Hawkman, he's like, you did die, right? And he's like, I don't really know. <laughs> you know so again like those you know i think those are some of the things that you know we really see kevin smith the fan you know having some fun there uh but you know carter does warn oliver you know tread lightly with with dinah and you know they end up spending the night together and you know uh carter and and oliver are, are fighting over it the next morning so you get again as far as those you know, those, those classic relationships and dynamics that you want to see play out. Uh, you know, that's another one that, that we check off in the story. Yeah. And I know we're going to get to onomatopoeia uh, a little bit more, but uh, what you just said about, about Ali and Dinah rekindling their romance, um, there, there was something that I couldn't shake. Again, it, it didn't take me out of the story. I still enjoyed it, but we all know from watching Kevin Smith's movies and hearing him speak live that he has just the filthiest potty mouth. I mean, his, his brain is, I mean, every other word is an F bomb. I mean, he really does have this sort of sick, twisted, uh, you know, foul mind. Um, I enjoy it, but it, that that's the reality of it. Um, and there was something that ran through a lot of the green arrow issues that I was really surprised he was able to get away with, especially in the early 2000s. I mean, one of the earliest scenes, uh, we see somebody actually snorting Coke. Um, and then shortly thereafter, it's not shown on panel, but it's this flashback where it seems as though Oliver in the past, like performs oral sex on Dinah in the kitchen. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's this innuendo that's there. Um, and it happens several times throughout the story and to me it was never never more overt than um you know as you mentioned you know hawkman cautions oliver to not rush immediately back into a sexual relationship with dinah she's very fragile she i don't mean fragile is like she's a woman and fragile i mean like the man she had been entangled with for many many years whom she thought was dead is now back. And that's really confusing for anybody. Um, so they decide to go on this date just to kind of talk things out. And he even makes a comment, you know, about, well, I don't want to think about my girl with some other guy. And she lets him have it. Like, you're not allowed to say that about me. I'm not your girl. Like if we're going to try to build something, it's got to be gradual. Um, and then of course, Riddler busts in and tries to, do something they take him out very easily and you know the the adrenaline of you know taking him out they basically start fornicating right there in the restaurant and it carries over into into i guess the jsa headquarters and so the next morning when hawkman discovers the two of them you know naked in bed together he's furious because he thinks ollie is blatantly disregarded everything that he told him even though this was largely dinah's doing which is a bit of a heel turn for her but okay um and so ollie and hawkman get into this physical fight over it and dinah comes out of the room and while all the jsa are trying to pull ollie and carter apart she's standing there buck naked 
her naughty bits covered only by Mr. Terrific's T-spheres. Um, they even make a joke about it, you know, the ball's on you. Um, and and my thought was like, she couldn't have put on a robe to come out like in public and in front of everybody. It just seemed like just a gratuitous kind of nude scene. And I, and I, I know that he's, a, you know, sex is on Kevin Smith's mind a lot. I just wonder how how far you really want to push it before it starts becoming um, a little distracting. Yeah. I mean, that all stood out too. I mean, to play devil's advocate, I mean, you know, yeah, you can make an argument that, you know, her showing up nude again, although we don't, you know, we don't see any of the, the naughty bits, but uh, it could be gratuitous or, you know, she just owns her body so much and she's not, you know, self-conscious and she, you know, she'll just uh, jump into the fray in in whatever, you know, (laughs) state she's in. I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, that, that uh, flashback scene where they're doing the dishes. Right. And he, their innuendo Mm -hmm. is like, you know, not if I soak, like, you know, not if I soak you first, Uh then we get into it. And then (laughs) in the present, when they reconnect and he's going to visit Sherwood. Uh, Uh So basically our takeaway is he's a very generous lover, I think, (laughs) you know, so good for him and good for her, you know? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, again, for Kevin Smith, I think this is perfectly in line. And to be honest, it's like rather tame for him, you know? I mean, was it pushing the boundaries of, you know, like mainstream superhero publishing in the early 2000s like probably i mean i yeah. think it it, it it walks the line um but pro but you know they probably gave him more leeway than they would someone else you know there's that and you know i, I mean again like i certainly wasn't offended but i get what you're saying like it is so kind of surprising that that they would go as far as they did but you know i, know I keep coming back to this idea but just you know treating them as 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 real people you know and even the jokes about the arrows in his quiver when they're in bed and like all that stuff, it's like, yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, overall, I mean, I, I found it, uh, you know, I, I guess I found it more more endearing. But, yeah, it's a little surprising to an extent. Yeah, and that's where I landed on it, too. And, and, and at the end of the day, uh, while you don't see a lot of, you know, older superhero comics, you know, prior to this, you know, showing – overtly sexual relationships i actually did find it refreshing i remember refining it for refreshing then and really finding it refreshing now because the reality is if you're going to treat these people as human beings they're going to have sexual relationships and superheroes are going to have sexual relationships with other superheroes in the same way that celebrities have you know relationships with other celebrities it's like who better knows what the life is like who can identify most with this who can i share my life and my and my my soul on my bed with other than somebody who knows exactly what it is to put on a costume and go out every night patrolling for for bad guys so i get it and i and i enjoyed it i just i was really surprised that he was allowed to get away i found myself chuckling you know it's a, it's a little puerile but i found myself chuckling at it but it was it was the nude scene that 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 yeah. You know, it just was like, I think she might put on a robe. <laughs> and, you know, but, but right, like it does make perfect sense. And especially for these two characters, I mean, yeah. Green Arrow and Black Canary, but I mean like Daredevil and Green Arrow. I mean, these, these guys are horn dogs, you know, they've got, they've got, <laughs> you know, they, they get around. So, you know, it, it, uh, it makes sense, but you know, it, it isn't just like with, uh, you know, Green Arrow and Black Canary, you know, Daredevil and Black Widow, right? Because, you know, things are tense between the two of them. At the end of yeah. the story, when Matt shows up at Natasha's apartment to apologize, she opens the door. She goes, Tony. So oh, yeah. it seems like she did basically the same thing that Matt did earlier in the story. He was upset about Karen and he called Natasha. It seems yeah. like off panel, she was upset with uh, Matt and called Tony. So, 
you know, uh, it, it is interesting uh, to kind of see how all that plays out. One yeah. other thing that I wanted to mention, and this is, you know, more, not so much like Kevin Smithing, but just a larger like DC universe uh, sort of sort of thing. Uh, because, you know, we had this period of time where, you know, Barry Allen had died and Wally West assumed the mantle and then Hal Jordan and Kyle Rayner and Oliver Queen and Connor Hawk. And now in all the years since, you know, all, all three <laughs> of them have, have come back and, uh, you know, the Barry Allen has been the one that I've wrestled with the most because I just felt, and again, this too is its own discussion, but I just felt like, yeah. you know, he had a wonderful send off. It was the rare instance of the protege stepping <clears throat> up, assuming the mantle, owning it, being accepted by fans. I mean, really making it, uh, you know, his own and Barry was still a part of the book, right? Through time travel and just the memory and the inspiration, right? So when they brought Barry back, and to be honest, I, I've never felt, and I still don't really feel like Barry has all that distinct of a personality, uh, to be honest. So I, I really felt like that took more away from the Flash than it added. And I think that's pretty clear in the in the sense that very clearly, like they haven't, they don't know what to do with Wally. Yeah. On the flip side, I think that the return of Oliver Queen was uh, was well advised because it, opens up this new dynamic now with with connor and they are two yeah. very different people and two very different green arrows and you know so you have that contrast you have this dynamic that was only explored for like a few issues before oliver queen died uh so i think this was an was an instance where um you know as much as i liked connor and he had some great moments in grant morrison's jla and, and everything mm-hmm. but you know i think this was an instance where you know it was a return that was you know uh was earned and deserved and it added more than it took away yeah i i i agree with everything you just said uh, this the quiver story really reminded me that barry allen's a better character when he's dead um, you know, we see him a little bit in the scenes up in up in heaven, and you know the fact that he's still around, and you know, and he's and he's at peace, and you know he lived his life and he did his hero thing, and now he's he's enjoying his rest, and and that made sense to me. I, you know, it probably doesn't hurt that when I started reading the Flash, I was reading Wally, and 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 that was the one. But they even make a reference in in Quiver to the fact that Wally's faster than Barry ever was. The speed force wasn't a thing until Wally that, that, you know, Wally really opened up the flash mythology in ways that Barry never really did. Um, So yeah, this was a reminder as brief as he is in, in this story, it it was definitely a reminder. And I agree with you too about, you know, bringing Ollie back, you know, when, when you see the sort of final tableau of Kevin Smith's green arrow run, you really get a sense that there's now this sort of, um, Team Arrow or Arrow family. Um, you've got Oliver, you've got Connor, you've got Dinah, you've got uh, Roy, and you've got Mia. And it's and it's it's nice. It's it's you know Oliver's not alone. Um, he's got all the relationships around him that you could want. Him. He's got a wife and kids essentially in this in this family, and it, it, it held so much promise for the character moving forward. And like you said, you know, Brad Meltzer picked up the baton and ran with it in a beautiful way. And, and I, I also really, really enjoyed what Judd Winnick did um, for the majority of that run, you know, moving on. Um, so I think, you know, bringing Oliver back was a smart move. And then Kevin Smith really set him up to be a major player uh, in the DC universe from that point forward. Yeah, for sure. I couldn't agree more. Uh, so is there anything else on your notes that you wanted to talk about or, or anything else generally? 
only onomatopoeia because yeah, I haven't yeah. had a chance to weigh in on him yet. Um, I, I agree with you. I think it's a, it was a really neat move and a bold one too, to say, yeah, I'm going to bring this character back. I'm going to have him face off against a villain. Who's not really a villain. You know, he's just some dude. Um, and after that, I'm going to introduce uh, a villain uh, who has a very sort of definable quirk. I don't want to say it's a power because it's not really a power, but a definable quirk. You know, he wears a mask that, you know, you can't see his face and he wears this trench coat and, you know, he's, you know, he'll stab you, he'll shoot you. He's not, you know, there's nothing particular about the the weapons that he uses or anything like that. But every time there's a sound, whether it's the blam of a gun or if it's the click of a button or something, and he just sort of says it. Um, and, you know, I'm going to sort of end on the opposite note that I began on, which is that, you know, Kevin Smith has a lot of language in him that he wants to express and he will put it on film and he will put it on a podcast and he will put it in these books. So for him of all people to create a character who essentially doesn't talk at all (laughs) was really interesting. You know, a character who isn't giving long speeches. Look, we get an issue, a full issue of Daredevil where Mysterio explains the entire history of his master plan. It's one long villain splain. We get a similar issue in Quiver where Stanley Dover tells us the entire history of where he came from, what his history with this monster is, why he wants Ollie's body, the whole thing. It is text, text, and more text. And then in these last couple issues, we get so little text We get a villain who doesn't say really anything. Um, And that's why I say I think we watch his growth from those early Daredevil issues all the way to the end of Sounds of Violence, where he finally learns, I think, to his credit, to to give something over to the art, to create stories that let the art do the talking for him. And it serves the story really, really well. I, I thoroughly enjoyed Sounds of Violence. Number one, because, you know, the entire battle with Ali and Onomatopoeia is happening with Connor's life in the balance. So there are real stakes to this. And like you said, Oliver is fighting him at the end with having lost a ton of blood because he had to give, give Connor his blood as a blood relative. Um, And he's hanging on to that bow for who knows how long exerting every last ounce of strength, but keeping it together. And it's tense and, and it's intense in the best ways possible. So I just, yeah, I really enjoyed this, this new character. And we're going to talk a little bit more about him because he appears in the, in, the, in the bonus story that we're going to be talking about as well. But yeah, I thought it was a really neat, neat addition to the DC universe. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I mean, I, I can't help but wonder if, you know, maybe that was, you know, Kevin Smith purposely, you know, challenging himself, right? Like, can I, you know, can I use a villain where, you know, I don't have the typical tools or, you know, and yeah. my arrows in my quiver that I, you know, that, right. I, that I normally do, right? And, you know, yeah. again, going back to this idea of Kevin Smith, the wordsmith and the wordiness, uh, you know, of of his characters generally. I mean, again, his movies are very dialogue heavy and, and yeah. so were the comics. But again, it's it's usually great dialogue and it, again it's it's worth it but certainly uh again i'm sure it was an adjustment for the art teams and the letterers like you know just you know these these you know comic book creators you know to uh you know to help tell this story in a little bit of a different way but you know it makes sense i mean smith himself is always very 
self-deprecating when he talks about himself as a director and his visual style. And, you know, I think in recent years he's, you know, he's, he's evolved a bit in, in his style, but still like a lot of his movies are, you know, they're not, again, by his own admission, like they're not the most visually dynamic. He doesn't usually tend to move the camera a ton, you know, and I think for him, it's really more, it's about the performance and it's about the words. And so, you know, not that, you know, he works harder on the script than on the directing, but I think like for him, like the, so much of the movie is in those screenplays. So like, it's, it's natural that that would kind of carry over to the comic book work. But, but I agree with you. I think as he moves forward, you do kind of see a little bit of that evolution. The saddest thing to me, I, I enjoyed my rereads so much. I think these stories are wonderful. I mean, I, I can't imagine anyone listened to us talk about this for almost two hours, never having read it. But in case they did, uh, you know, I, I really hope that they'll go and they'll check these out again. They're, you know, they're they're wonderful introductions to these characters. Yes, they're, you know, they deal with a lot of history and baggage and continuity, but in, in an engaging way that for you and I, yeah. like, you know, really pulled us in and hopefully readers would have that as well. But the saddest thing for me is I just, you know, I wish we got more comic book stories like this from Kevin Smith. You know, I think that, you know, as much as, you know, we're going to talk about his bat, one of his Batman miniseries and the extra credit. And, you know, as far as, you know, his DC and Marvel work, you know, there was that Spider-Man black cat miniseries. I mean, there are a couple of other things, but you know, there's not a ton. And I don't think anything that matches the, the, the quality of these stories, you know? Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you. Uh, You know, my, my sort of final take on, on all of it is that, you know, for superhero stories, I found both of them to be lighter on action than I would have thought them to be. Not that there is an action in it. You know, when there is action, it's great. But we have real long stretches where characters are talking, where, you know, uh, you know we're really digging deep on the humanity of these characters, going back to what you said earlier, is, you know, and that's the part of these stories that I appreciated most of all, you know, you know, comic book nerds are always going to say, you know, Oh, I love the way he fought Mysterio or, Oh yeah. I'm on a pew with his, but at the, at the end of the day, you know, that's cool for a page or two, Uh, but, but what's going to keep me coming back to these stories again and again, what's going to make me want to share these stories with people is the fact that I feel like I understand Matt Murdock a lot better after having read the story than I did. I feel like I understand Green Arrow and his place in the DC universe better, more fully than I did, um, you know, when I started. So, you know, the last thing I'm going to say is, I'm going to actually borrow a, a phrase that Kevin Smith likes to use when he talks about, you know, his fandom. Um, you know, people often ask him, you know, why he seems to love everything. You know, he doesn't generally have a lot of negative things to say about the movies and the TV shows and the comedy. He's just, he's a gusher, you know, he loves everything. And his philosophy about it all is, you know, why curse the darkness when you can light a candle? And so I appreciate the fact that, you know, we got to sit here and talk about two stories in which Kevin Smith gave me lots of reasons to light the candles rather than focusing on, you know, some of the things in comicdom that, don't throw me or the, you know, that I, that I could spend an hour ragging on, but why bother? Why put that energy out into the universe when we can celebrate stories that are well told, well made, and that we want to revisit over and over again? 
Well, that was beautiful. When you said a phrase, I thought you were going to say like snoochie boochies or something like that. So um, that was very nice. <laughs> he said that. Uh, Jay said that. But yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we didn't mention this uh, when you mentioned, you know, talking about phrases. We didn't uh, mention this specifically as much as we talked about the, you know, Matt's crisis of faith. But, mm-hmm. you know, Mysterio has a line and I think it's quoted on the back cover of the of the collected edition that, you know, a man without fear is a man without faith and a man without faith is easily unmade, um, you know, which I thought was interesting and, and sort of this idea of, yeah, yeah, can you be, yeah, can you have faith but also be fearless because is not part of faith, right? Like you, 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 there is this fear of, you know, what's to come in the next life and you have to do the right thing and all of that. So uh, just an interesting idea and a good line, great line. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's snappy. For sure. Well, listen, thank you so much. This was, uh, I appreciate you as always, you know, coming along for the ride and doing this reading assignment and, uh, you know, being, you know, so on board to, uh, to discuss this. I really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you very much. Same. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. My pleasure. And, you know, I, my thanks to Kevin Smith for these great stories. You know, again, Absolutely. they're over 20 years old and they still hold up great. So I, I, I highly recommend them. And, you know, these are stories that will, you know, continue to occupy uh, space on my bookshelf. So Same. thank you, Scott. Thank you to uh, our audience. Again, Scott and I are going to talk about Batman Cacophony in the uh, Patreon exclusive bonus episode. So I hope that you will check that out. Of course, we'll be back here in two weeks with an all new episode. We're going to be talking about the uh, the Jeff Loeb, Ed McGinnis, Red Hulk saga. So that'll be a little bit of a change of pace from uh, from this episode. So I hope that you'll... Uh, not as Not as many candles to light on that one? Not so much, not so much, (laughs) not so much, Uh, but it should be a really fun time. So I hope that people will check that out. And uh, until then, remember, they're all imaginary stories. My Comic Shop Book Club is a Flat Squirrel production, art by Kristen San Gregorio, music by Basic Printer. If you like what you heard, be sure to check out my other podcasts, Digging for Kryptonite and My Comic Shop History. Sign up for exclusive content, including the official book club companion podcast, at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato and watch my documentary film, My Comic Shop Country, out now on Apple TV and Amazon. <laughs>